of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 297. Just Jason and myself today. Uh, we're going to be covering Sigmund Shlomo Freud and Gustav. What are we going to say today, Jason? Young or Jung? I guess we'll say Young, right? I've always pronounced it Young, but I don't know if that's actually correct. Yeah, I think it is. Um, although I was looking at some things online, some people actually said Jung, but I don't think that's correct. So we'll just say Young. Actually, Believe it or not, Young lived all the way into the 1960s. Uh, he was about, I think, 20 year, 20 years Freud's junior. Um, I think Freud passed away in the 30s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but we'll get into these things. The main reason we're covering this is because when you start looking at all the schools of social engineering, it always ties back in some way, shape, or form to one or both of these guys. It doesn't even seem to me that there's agreement on what one or the other believed. I mean, I even just this morning as we sat down to do this, already had the notes, already read them. Uh, I'm going from site to site, and it's almost like one site says one thing, and then the next one says the exact opposite. But what we can be sure of is that this is the benchmark where people started to realize that the human mind was, I guess I don't want to say hackable yet, but that's basically what we're talking about. Anyhow, Jason, welcome. And, well, it's a nice morning for me, but I don't think it is for you. Uh, it's cold, 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 and all the snow that fell a day ago is ice now. <laughs> uh, we were supposed to record yesterday, but the snow brought down the internet all yesterday, uh, half of the day yesterday. But anyhow, do you have anything, or are we going to jump in? You want to make any comment on these uh, psycho dudes? Well, I will in a moment, but yes, I actually have an announcement now that I got details. Okay. Our friend Karen B., who put on the Flattoberfest event back in October, she is putting on something called the Solar Return Festival, I guess we could call it. And uh, this is more of a music and arts thing as opposed to a conference. But I will be playing there. I'm going to be doing a full acoustic set of my original material. And it's at the same location that the uh, Flattoberfest event was at. So. Let me get a website address for anyone who might be interested in going. It's in Greenville, South Carolina, same location again. It's on uh, March 27th. You can go to flatearthfestivals.com for all of the information. Okay, so Solar Return, we're, we're centering around the spring equinox, right? Yep. Okay, did, I, did they actually, I haven't even calculated it out. Sounds a little late to be the spring equinox. She was trying to have it earlier. Mm. And it was uh, coming down to the fact that, once again, she was trying to find a location where everybody could be maskless. Right. And actually, I get emails every week. If you want to know when the real equinox is in your area, it's subject to geography, just like the sunrise. Guy in California does not experience sunrise when a guy in New York experiences sunrise, just to illustrate why that's true. Just go on date time or any of these places, maybe choose two because we have seen them shuffle a little bit and you figure out uh, by the numbers they provide when equal day and night down to the second occurs, that would be your equinox. And um, I, I've forgotten now, what is it? It's typically three days before the 21st that they announce, or is it three days? I think it's three days before, but I'd have to look. Anyhow, um, you actually had psychology in college, didn't you? Yes, I took it in my senior year in high school. Not quite a prep course, but it was a, a very good overview and I started going to school for psychology and just never finished. 
All right. Well, I'll preface what we're about to say. Uh, it's like all the medicine these days. It seems to be that most of what we see in, <laughs> I don't even know what we, this mind sciences, not really. <laughs> that would be more like meditation. Um, the medical analysis of the human mind has devolved, like most medicine, into chemical drugs. And that's a shame. But what we're going to do here is outline uh, what is outlinable about these two two men? Because a lot of people have no idea. And this really is where so much starts. And I would go so far as to say probably places like Tavistock and the Frankfurt School based the real world experiments they did, at least to some degree, on the work of one or both of these men. And the difference is they did it in real life. So they had a real outcome. And they came up with things that they could replicate, and they knew they could replicate it. But uh, my guess is most of it starts with these two men. Anything you want to add before we jump here? Well, we're talking 30 years ago that it's been since I've been in school. And we were talking a little bit before we got on about how it's all drugs, drugs, drugs now. And while that was starting to be kind of a thing, that wasn't the main push when I was still in. I think that started throughout the 90s as the yep. be-all, end-all is just throw a drug at it. Obviously, Prozac was around, things like that. But the idea I got wasn't that you're just trying to drug somebody up and dull their mind. It was still more about, hey, try and find the root of a problem, talk it through, counseling. I even took sociology and things like that. So it seemed to be more of a uh, humanitarian aspect in 1991 when I would have been there as opposed to drug the living shit out of somebody now. And if that drug doesn't work, we've got 600 more behind it. Right. I agree with you. I think it was the late 90s when I began to see almost um, recreational use of things like programs, like everyone you bumped into was doing this new thing. Um, and the weird thing about it is a lot of these drugs, you had to take them for a week or a month. They had to build up or whatever you want to call that. Um, and you could tell the difference. I could tell the difference then. It dulled these people out. Uh, it made them blasé, bland, um, not themselves. But anyhow, let's go ahead and jump in and outline what we can outline. A lot of what you're talking about, by the way, are what's called SSRIs, but we're not even going to really deal with any of that stuff. We're going to start off with something called psychoanalysis. And that is a set of theories and therapeutic techniques used to study the unconscious mind, which together form a method of treatment for mental disorders. The discipline was first established in the early 1890s by Austrian neurologist Sigmund Freud, who retained the term psychoanalysis for his own school of thought. Freud's work stems partly from the clinical work of Joseph Brewer and others. Psychoanalysis was later developed in different directions, predominantly by students of Freud, such as Alfred Adler and his collaborator Carl Gustav Jung, as well as by neo-Freudian thinkers such as Eric Fromm, Karen Horney, and Harry Stack Sullivan. Psychoanalysis has been known to be a controversial discipline, and its validity as a science is very contested. Regardless, it remains a strong influence within psychiatry, but not in all sections. Psychoanalytic concepts are also widely used outside the therapeutic arena in areas such as psychoanalytic literary criticism, as well as in the analysis of film, fairy tales, philosophical perspectives as Freudo-Marxism, and other cultural phenomena. 
So we'll, as we get in here, you'll begin to see, I actually, when I was in um, school, I did, I don't know, a couple papers on dreams. Jung was the basis of those. Um, but they, by the time these guys came around, they already knew there were some things going on with what we might call the subconscious. After all, you remember the dates on mesmer, mesmerism, hypnotizing people? Uh, I think it precedes all this, doesn't it? I believe so, yes. Yeah, that was a big deal when it first came, and then it went out of favor really quickly. And for my part, how do you dismiss something that's clearly so powerful? I don't think it was dismissed. I think it was made fun of uh, to push it off the public eye, and then people ran with what was possible. But I once had someone try to hypnotize me, and they couldn't do it. I didn't believe it. You know, I saw these people being hypnotized so easily and doing all these things. And I'm all, come on. And they went to do it to me and they're all let go, relax, do all these things. And, you know, it's like you almost got to let it happen. At least that's the way I experienced. You ever, did anyone ever try to hypnotize you, Jason? No, but I strongly have the notion that it's not going to work. It's almost like, uh, I'm not sure about this. For me, I could easily block someone from trying to do it to me, I think, unless there's other ways um, to do it. But when Mesmer came around, it was all the rage, and it was pretty clear there were parts of the mind. I guess we could maybe call that the subconscious. I don't know. But that probably led in to where Freud and Jung and all these others start going, because immediately we have ideas of subconscious, id, all these things. But let's get in here. Many see Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung as the two who defined the world of psychology. Both had differing theories, but made equal impacts on the perception of the human mind. At one point, the two were not only esteemed colleagues to each other, but great friends. Freud acted as a mentor and father figure towards Jung, and Jung acted as a very positive new prospect to the movement towards Freud. Their friendship and business partnership did not last long, however, over their differences in how the human mind operated. So basically, there's, I think, 20 years between these two men. Um, so they're, well, I guess we, we mark a generation at about 20, 25 years these days. So they're almost a generation apart. Go ahead. Sigmund Freud believed that events in childhood have a great influence on the adult life, shaping the personality along the way. For an example of this, Anxiety originating from traumatic experiences in a person's past is hidden from consciousness and may cause problems during adulthood, possibly in the form of neuroses. You know, it's interesting as you read the descriptions of how they want to identify with the supposed work of these two men. How did we get to a point where all this was out the freaking window and it became about drugs? By the way, um, little off topic. But there, if, you, if you're into reading fiction accounts, there's a pretty good book called The 7% Solution, which is all about a cocaine addiction that Sigmund Freud has. And I think it's Holmes and Watson. I don't even remember, but I'm pretty sure uh, the old stereotypical cliche characters, Holmes and Watson, have to fool Sigmund Freud to cure him of the cocaine addiction. But there's all these crossovers from that fictitious story. I think it's fictitious. Uh, into the real life of Sigmund Freud, but go ahead, man. Continuing with Freud's viewpoint, when we explain our behavior to ourselves or to others, which is conscious mental activity, we rarely give a true account of our motivation. This is not because we are deliberately lying, although it may seem that to the outside viewer. While human beings are great deceivers of others, they are quite often more adept at self-deception. 
Freud's life work was concentrated on his attempts to find ways of penetrating this often subtle and elaborate camouflage that obscures the hidden structure and processes of an individual's personality. His lexicon has become embedded within the vocabulary of Western society. Words he introduced through his theories are now used commonly today. Terms such as anal, personality, cathartic, denial, Freudian slip, libido, neurotic, and repression. When we go back to the work of like Tavistock Institute and the the forerunner to that, which is the Frankfurt School, the few things that you can get to read on these things that are acceptable as information sources, uh, they always relate back to Freud or Jung. Um, And by the way, in terms of Jung, we're talking about Freud right here. We're about to get into Jung. It's almost unreal how much of the old mm, archetypal things from very old cultures he did, uh, like drugs, like ayahuasca, um, all kinds of things you wouldn't expect from a mainstream so-called psychologist uh, if you read about Jung. Well, as far as what Freud did, it's a pretty commonly accepted thing in just general society now that if something's bothering you, you talk about it. And that can definitely be said to have been drawn from the work of Freud. You got to wonder how much things like maybe AA meetings draw on the work that was laid down by these guys. Um, I'm not sure about that, but as I'm thinking about it, it's a similar idea. But anyhow, let's get into Jung. Carl Jung was an early supporter of Sigmund Freud because of their shared interest in the unconscious. He was an active member of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society, which was formerly known as the Wednesday Psychological Society. When the International Psychoanalytical Association formed in 1910, Jung became president at the request of Freud. You know, it's strange, Jason, as I was reading up on things, uh, I don't think I, I think I've seen it in movies where they're using uh, mesmerism, basically. Did you come across anything with these guys using hypnotism? No, no. Predominantly, it was all sex-oriented. Yeah, that's the thing. When I was younger, uh, that was the description you got. Like, maybe 30 years ago, it was like, oh, everything Freud said has to do with sex and this, that. When you go and look up about these two men now, I mean, it's in there, but it's not the main thing. It used to be one of the main things you were told. The one thing I got was that Freud is no longer considered the be-all, end-all like he used to be. I kept seeing that on different websites I was looking at that were, I guess you could call mainstream psychology sites in the modern time. Which is interesting because there's been a lot of time where they've actually clinically proven out a lot of things. And again, who knows how many people are aware of the things places like Tavistock have done to large social groups and to individuals and proved outright. This does this, and we can replicate it. Um, I don't think there was a lot of that going on back in these days. Well, again, I think most people understand the concept that if there's some severe trauma that happened in the past, and the person has some kind of massive thing going on in their life now, that doesn't make a lot of sense that those events are almost certainly related in some way. To me, when I think about it, I always think of Jung with like the archetypes and relating to very old kind of primitive cultural traditions that he got into that. Um, I want to say ayahuasca, but I don't think that's the right thing, but things like that. And to me, that's a a safer bet, isn't it? Because you have cultures who have been doing these things, so there's clearly something going on there. And I did read quite a few places that, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say defamed Sigmund Freud, but it's on the edge of that, like not as important as he used to be. The one thing I would take away from all of this already, because I had to look at so much with these two men, 
is that they're both right in a lot of aspects. And the human mind is so complex at times that you can apply either or of their concepts, and it can probably yield some decent results. Well, it's kind of ironic that these two men are involved in the mine, and yet they couldn't come together or get along. Their ideas differed, so they had a falling out. It's a bit ironic. Well, I guess that speaks to ego. <laughs> Didn't they write a book about that? I think so. Yeah. Probably several. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Disagreements between the two men began in 1912. While on a lecture tour of the United States, Jung publicly criticized Freud's theory of the Oedipus complex and his emphasis on infantile sexuality. The following year, an irrevocable split came between them, with Jung going on to develop his own version of psychoanalytic theory. Most of Jung's assumptions of his analytical psychology reflect his theoretical differences with Freud's. For example, while Jung agreed with Freud that a person's past and childhood experiences determined future behavior, he also believed that we are shaped by our future or our aspirations as well. Freud developed a topographical model of the mind in which he described the features of the mind's structure and function. Freud used the analogy of an iceberg to describe the three levels of the mind. And you know, that's always sat okay with me. What you're getting from a person on the surface is certainly only a small part of what makes them up as a human being. That makes perfect sense to me because human beings are so complex. There's so much to them. And I, I don't know what terms you want to lay on them between conscious, subconscious, all that stuff. But there's certainly something to it in that regard. You know, for me, I would be interested to hear, to me, what I'm aware of, of the things that I've looked at in my lifetime, the highest mind sciences have to go to the cultures that were big in meditation. Almost unimaginable, some of the things they claim can be done uh, by a very high meditative mind. Uh, I wonder what they think of all this. And are we actually looking at another thing where this has been hyper-materialized in the, in the land of science? Or is it something else altogether? I don't know. But we're talking about the mind here. And how is it that these, well, it was back in the day, there might not have been that much contact to places. But even places like Tibet early on in these men's lives, uh, their whole existence was based on the idea of meditation. And they're claiming they could do things that are almost magical in nature. But the reason it's acceptable to think that it's probably true is they're not the only culture that are making these claims. You can go to India, you go all over the place. Um, to me, that's the highest mind science. So my point would be, I wonder what their impression of the work of these two men is. Meditation is an interesting concept. It's almost like self-reflection or self-analysis. And it's incredibly useful if you can do it and keep to it for restructuring your mind and making it more disciplined. And therefore, if you have some sort of traumas or something you're trying to deal with, meditation can help deal with those without an exterior force acting on it. You're dealing with it in your own way. You're helping your own internal chaos become less chaotic. You know, I forget actually the Dalai Lama had said that it was a dying art in public not too long ago. I think it starts with a T. I forget the name for the supposed practice. Go look up the Tibetan ejection of consciousness or other things like these. It's pretty un unbelievable. And even reading things like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where they're trying to outline what a human, I don't know, what do we call it, a soul, experiences after death, and the idea that you can escape this cycle that we're all stuck in. That's the claim of a lot of older cultures. That all comes down to mind. And when you start reading, it goes so far beyond the meditation that 
that we think we recognize or the way meditation would be beneficial in you know a Western culture like we've come up with. When you really start reading about it, even the lineage for these things to be valid had to be tracked back to the first person they were aware of that did it. But it's it almost looks when you look at what they're claiming they accomplished, uh, which, by the way, here's a good example. Everyone knows the flamel woodcut. You can look it up. There's a little dude. It's an old alchemical woodcut. I think it's a woodcut. You can see the picture. A little dude is poking his head out through the firmament to see what's beyond. Um, This also is an allusion to what supposedly could be accomplished by a high meditative master, um, that we cannot leave this place, this sealed hermetic flask, supposedly with our bodies. But in meditation, all bets are off to the point where I've read accounts that when you're dreaming, you leave this place. Uh, whether it's true or not, <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, but I'm just saying, it almost feels to me like this became very cold analytical. I want, maybe I won't go so far as to say materialistic, but how is it that men so into what's going on with the mind wouldn't have made contact? And maybe I'm speaking out of school here because I wouldn't be surprised to, to learn Jung did it. Breaking down Freud's model, on the surface is consciousness which consists of those thoughts that are the focus of our attention right now. This is seen as the tip of the iceberg above the water. The preconscious consists of all which can be retrieved from memory. The third and most significant region is the unconscious. Here lie the processes that are the real cause of most behavior. Like an iceberg, the most important part of the mind is the part you cannot see. The unconscious mind acts as a repository, a cauldron of primitive wishes and impulses kept at bay and mediated by the preconscious area. There's something to all this, and the old way they used to advertise proves it. They would flash half a frame uh, in a film roll of something that your subconscious provably picks up on, but your conscious mind, it goes by too quick. So, uh, I mean, these things to me are not arguable. I just wonder if it's so cut and dry where you're going down to three levels. I wonder how the older cultures would have viewed it, but it's very interesting. And again, um, did all that subconscious advertising come as a result of the work of these two men? I don't know, Jason, but I, I think there's probably a connection there. Right. I don't necessarily agree that they can be cut and dry totally either, certain levels and things like that, but there's probably depths to the human mind. There, there's no doubt that there's depths to the human mind. And Freud definitely had one thing right, and that's that sex is a very strong concept tied into the core of all human beings, or else advertising, especially how bad it is today, wouldn't work the way it does because sex sells. Right. And you bring up the point. So I went looking because when I was younger, the idea that it was all about sex with Freud, uh, I read on the other side that Jung accepted sex, but more as a... Energy in general, do you know the differentiation between the two viewpoints? Not off the top of my head, I don't. But there's no doubt that sex as a concept is intricately tied into what makes us human. No no doubt. And again, that was part of the subconscious tests that were done with film and is maybe the basis for TV. Think about a, com- a modern TV where your Hertz rate, you can look at the back of your television. By the way, Hertz is a, is a new word in my lifetime that became popular. I guess it precedes my lifetime, but it became used popularly in my lifetime. Used to be cycles a second. And if you think about it, why the hell are we saying Hertz? It's a dude's name, by the way, related to JFK, by the way. 
Um, why are we saying hertz? Words have meaning. Uh, cycles per second is actually descriptive and tells you a thing about what you're talking about. Hertz doesn't do any of that unless we're talking about hurting people. My point is on a modern electronic television, if you look at the hertz rate, that is basically whatever that number is. If it's 100, if it's 200, whatever it is, is how many times a second that signal is blinking, flashing in your face. So think of all the possibility for subconscious carrier waves and these simple tests that we saw back in the 70s where they actually ran films and they would put a penis on half a frame and they would measure that the subconscious of the audience picked up on that and that the human beings that viewed it were affected in some way. Um, now think about where we are now. I mean, back then, what was, what was the rate? 24 frames per second, I think we're dealing with in classic film. It yeah. went up around 30 modern day, but you can still find film at 24 a second. Your television's going over 100 if your hertz rate's over 100. Some hertz rates, I believe now, are up over 200. So think about what we're talking about. The work of these two men almost certainly considered when you're using devices like that. 24 frames per second is still common for normal film, such as television, movies. 48 frames per second is used if a hyper-real look is desired. But the hertz rate, the refresh rate for the standard televisions and things like that is 60. But you can get into much faster refresh rates, and people do so with video games, which is why they're so mesmerizing for a lot of people. By the way, if hertz is viewed as a bad thing, possibly, what is kilohertz? Yikes! <laughs> well, video games, you bring up a good point, you know? The young generation spends hours and hours and hours looking at those things. And I get emails all the time about things people see in video games, the kind of programming ideas that are inserted. What's going on in the things that only your subconscious is picking up on? And by the way, you and I covered as an example, one time uh, you knew a guy making video games where they were using, they went into a slaughterhouse to record pigs screaming and they used that in their soundtrack for a basically young people's video game. Well, what's that do to your subconscious? Just saying. Oh, yeah. That's, oh, God. And that's what let him uh, know to get the hell out, too. Hellbent, man. Hellbent. Freud later developed a more structural model of the mind comprising the entities id, ego, and superego. This is what Freud called the psychic apparatus. These would not be physical areas within the brain itself, but hypothetical conceptualizations of important mental functions. The id, the ego, and the superego have most commonly been conceptualized as three essential parts of the human personality. Freud assumed the id operated at an unconscious level according to the pleasure principle or gratification that came from satisfying basic instincts. The id comprises two kinds of biological instincts, or drives, which Freud called eros and thanatos. Eros, or life instinct, helps the individual to survive. It directs life-sustaining activities such as respiration, eating, and sex. This was from 1925. The energy created by the life instincts is known as libido. In contrast, thanatos, or death instinct, is viewed as a set of destructive forces in all human beings, which Freud came up with in 1920. When this energy is directed outward onto others, it is expressed as aggression and violence. Freud believed that eros is stronger than thanatos, thus enabling people to survive rather than self-destruct. 
well, all these terms are still with us in the modern era. And I would point out, even when he's naming his ideas, he's going back to the old mythic archetypes with Eros and Thanatos, which, by the way, isn't too far off Thanos, but I'd have to look up what's going on today. And I've always thought that that old Waffles commercial uh, was a, a play, a poke in the eye. Let go of my ego. Because <laughs> you see what I'm going, let go of my ego. Um, I've always thought there was a play going on there. But each of these terms you identified is in the current normal average dialectic of daily life now well thanos is from old marvel comics that has been around since i don't know if it's 60s or 70s or whatever but the marvel comics drew heavily very heavily from myth yeah i mean some of it's based verbatim you know the ideas of thor uh there's nothing new under the sun these ideas get cycled and cycled and you know we've covered the idea that there are claims that are only and when I was younger, the claim was there was 12 storylines. Now, if you go online, you can find everything from there's only one to there's, I don't know, 30 or 60. Um, but the point is, it's commonly agreed. There's only so many ways you can tell a story. When I was young, I wouldn't believe it. I thought, come on, man. A everyone could think of a different way. Um, but as I began to look at it and how stories are broken down, you begin to realize things just get reused and repackaged and spruced up or changed a bit. And even here... When Freud is naming his things, he's going back to, I would have to call that Greek myth, but I need to look it up to know for sure. And those storylines have been discarded a lot of times with modern film and storytelling and all that, which is why they seem so vapid. Yeah. Yep. The ego develops from the id during infancy. The ego's goal is to satisfy the demands of the id in a safe and socially acceptable way. In contrast to the id, the ego follows the reality principle as it operates in both the conscious and unconscious mind. Okay, we're in, we're in Freud, just to be clear, we're in Freud's point of view, um, but you'll see breakdowns or, you know, parents that are parents for the first time point out, you know, children run around naked, they don't care, they don't realize they're naked, um, and then there comes a point when they do. Um, I think it relates to, to what we're outlining here. Uh, and by the way, again, this is Freud's point of view, not Jung. The superego develops during early childhood when the child identifies with the same-sex parent and is responsible for ensuring that moral standards are followed. The superego operates on the morality principle and motivates us to behave in a socially responsible and acceptable manner. <laughs> okay, go ahead. The basic dilemma of all human existence is that each element of the psychic apparatus makes demands upon us that are incompatible with the other two. Inner conflict is, of course, inevitable. For example, the superego can make a person feel guilty if rules are not followed. When there is a conflict between the goals of the id and the superego, the ego must act as a referee and mediate this conflict. Freud stated that the ego can deploy various defense mechanisms to prevent it from becoming overwhelmed by anxiety. Well, I guess if there's any validity to any of these ideas, if people still accept them or prove them out in some meaningful way, it starts to speak to people you might meet on the street. I don't know, or even the, the people who run this place. A lot of people describe them as psychopathic because they don't seem to have any consciousness or you know, they, they don't feel guilty about anything. Well, the concept of following the rules is something that always sticks out to me because what someone accepts as rules in an acceptable manner is extremely subjective. For instance, all the nonsense going on today, you and I both view it the same way that while they may be making rules about this stuff, we both think it's total poppycock and don't feel bad in the least about not following it. 
Well, that's the thing. There are very few rules that I accept at this point. And what I realize is in common life, and this is the problem with corporation. Corporation never sits still. They could have their best year ever at anything they're doing. And guess what? They're all going to come to the table next year and figure out how they can take it further, do more, even sometimes at the detriment to their own effort. They just can never sit still and say, okay, we've accomplished all these things. It always has to go further. And what that means is in the corporate kind of construct, more rules, more policies, more, and unfortunately, uh, as we pointed out, this is what governs our worlds now. That you know, our municipalities are corporations. Our, our supposed federal government is a corporation, and it just gets to a point where this is unsustainable and it's unnatural. And when you look at how Freud is trying to identify these ideas, it goes to show you uh, how can you possibly wrap those ideas around so many freaking rules that I don't know how many volumes of books does it take to write them all now hundreds and hundreds of volumes, all the rules and policies that we're supposedly subject to. It's not possible for a human being to understand them all. That's how many we have. Right. If you look at what's passed for laws every day, it's outrageous. Tax codes alone are out of control. Which are not laws, but it goes to show it does fit the moniker of rule uh, that we're putting down here. Uh, but I don't, I don't count myself as subject to these things. They're, it's unnatural. That's how I've started to define a lot of things is if I feel it's natural, I'll consider it. If I feel it's unnatural, I'm not interested in even considering it. Freud sought to understand the nature of sexuality by retracing the sexual history of his patients. This was not primarily an investigation of sexual experiences. Far more important to his investigations were the patients' wishes and desires, their experience of love, hate, shame, guilt, and fear, along with how they handled these powerful emotions that all humans possess. These studies led to the most controversial part of Freud's work, his theory of psychosexual development and the Oedipus complex. Freud believed that children are born with a libido, or a sexual pleasure urge. There are a number of stages of childhood during which the child seeks pleasure from a different object. So what's ironic about this is this work had to have started near, at least near the turn of the 1900s, maybe into the 1800s. And we're told that people were very conservative. So how honest an account could you have got? That's what I'm wondering. Um, because if you're not getting honest accounts, you're not getting good data. Uh, and we are told from that period of time, these are not things that were just laid out on the table openly, particularly from the fairer sex uh, or the feminine gender. And again, I've read accounts where drugs were used to try to break down this. I don't know if it was with Freud or at a later date, and this may relate to the 7% solution. I'm just not sure. I've forgotten. It's been so long since I've looked at it. But think about what we're saying here. End of the 1800s, early 1900s, to get open, honest data on sexual ideas. Uh, was that a possible thing? Was it commonly easy to achieve? There are a lot of people who have also leveled the accusation at Freud that he was really obsessed with sex in general, just a bit of a deviant, you might say, and just looked too hard into sex because that was his own desires. I guess that's up to interpretation. Well, let's think about what we're being told here. They're, they're saying this shapes a human life and a human mind. Well, he's a human being, so how is he not subject to it? So I think you have to look at that avenue, right? 
but unless I went back and actually looked exactly um, how this was being done, what was being asked, um, and I'm sure people have, uh, but again, 20, 30 years ago, when you heard about Freud, you were told, oh, it was all about sex with Freud. That was the viewpoint back then. By the way, this is the work, all of this, that Edward Bernays took and applied to the concept of advertisement and social manipulation. Well, there's another strong indicator that there was a there there. And what is the relationship between Freud and Bernays? Double nephew. There's that. How is it that these kind of iconic pillars of our so-called history uh, always come from the same circles and the same families? Goes to show you, all the world's a stage, man. And for the most part, we are not the people picking the actors. The psychosexual stages are oral, anal, phallic, latent, and genital. Freud put forth that to be psychologically healthy, each stage must be successfully completed. Mental abnormality can occur if a stage is not completed successfully with the person becoming fixated in a particular stage. This particular theory shows how adult personality is determined by childhood experiences. You know, I think a lot of people in the things I was reading want to say, oh, this is just all his sexual hangups and it's all sex, sex, sex. But let's make an obvious observation here. It wasn't too long ago I was looking up the number two site visited in the world. It was a pornography site. So really, and not only that, look at the work I did on the Zodiac where I knew it had been changed and I went into work and then I determined why it had been changed, how it had been changed. Um, the, the new stations of the Zodiac that were added in for our era and at the, maybe the root of those ideas, it's about sex. Um, and look at the world around us constantly right now. I mean, how is it that we've been here so long and we're not balanced or at least currently in our era, the, the idea of male and female is not still not a very balanced thing. How can that be? We've, we've been together here for so long. You think we might've worked a few things out, but I don't know. If his ideas about sex are acceptable, have been used, have been proven, but I can tell you that sex is a huge part of the existent, existence in our current era, and the number two visited site in the world as of, I don't know, a month or two ago pretty much proves it. Well, I think it's common knowledge at this point that the internet proliferated because of pornography, but you can see that there's a lot of reality to this kind of work, whether it could be nailed down to specifics, exactly from Freud or not, well, whatever. But what are the bad guys doing to our society now? What are they targeting? They're targeting sexuality. They're doing their damnedest to mangle nature's way of doing things, the male and the female, and what those normal stereotypes are. They are devastating the youth today with the nonsense that they're pumping out by completely screwing up what it is to be a man or a woman. Well, just the, the cliche, sex sells, is a perversion of that, right? The, nature's idea of sex is to create offspring, right? To perpetuate a generation. And that is a far cry from the idea, the corporatized idea behind sex sells. But that is, in fact, what we see. Um, sex is, you know, there was a, what was the guy's name? So look at, I almost wanted to do a show on this, um, but I don't watch enough TV. Actually, now that I'm taking care of old people, I'm forced to sit through more sitcoms than I'd care to right now um, because you just can't leave people alone. 
<laughs> I use a lot of earplugs in reading, but my point being the guy who created the guy who created two and a half men created some of the most popular sitcoms. Uh, it was Chuck Lorre is the guy's name. Okay, so Chuck Lorre is the guy's name. He did Two and a Half Men. He did Big Bang. He did a show called Mom. And he did uh, a spinoff from Big Bang called Young Sheldon. Those are just the ones that I'm aware of because I don't pay a lot of attention to this. But what I do know, um, because I have older members of my family who do watch sitcoms, is the trajectory has been to the gutter. From the time Two and a Half Men, which could be very racy and kind of rude in its delivery, by the time you get to mom, it's almost unreal how lowered the existence of the portrayal of a human being in the United States has become. Almost like we live our life in the gutter. And here again, we see what does TV do? Why is TV portraying these things? And I think it comes back to the idea of the movie Idiocracy. When you're exposed to this at a level that doesn't go away, after some time, it becomes normalized. And so when your hopes and dreams are dragged in the gutter for decade after decade, uh, your hopes and dreams pretty soon are residing in the gutter. And that's exactly what's going on here. Even in the ones that he created that are not so rude on the face of it, they're trying to make special a mental uh, it's not a deficiency. Someone who is not what they would call normal mentally is elevated as special because of the science that mind can achieve. And again, there's agenda behind all of it uh, to the point where they took the individual character I'm talking about and they did a spinoff to start with his young life just to show you that these are the smartest people in the world. And I would beg to differ. Because you're good at science or you're good at math does not make you the smartest person in the world, does it? If you're detached from the natural world or the things that actually matter in a natural system, then how much, how important can that actually be? I would point out. But I mean, I don't know if you're with me here, Jason. Uh, the ideas that Freud laid down, they have to have found their way into all this kind of gutter sledding of sitcoms, I guess would be a good description. Oh, sure. And man, these sitcoms are a good example to see where the controllers are at with their destruction of our society. Big Bang is pretty harmless in comparison to some of the stuff being cranked out today. And even that's got some pretty messed up concepts laced through it. Well, they're all the most educated among us. They're PhDs. And what are they interested in? Dressing up in comic books. So even the subtext is lowering. Like I, I grew up with people who were PhDs and who taught at the college level and they were not playing with dolls and interested in comic books. They were, they were engaged in what they considered to be serious endeavors. The idea of an adult man or an adult woman in that period of time, seventies into the early eighties is a far cry from what's being portrayed uh, in big Bang. So even the subtext is aiming for the gutter bringing you down, making everything childish or cheap or, I don't know, diminished in general. Well, they kind of cheapened the concept of being hyper-intelligent because these people, this group that are supposed to be men in their 30s, were obsessed with fantasy as opposed to being what I've normally encountered with super smart people, that they're kind of stiff, kind of to themselves, very much in their own head, and just very, very interested in the subject matters that they are interested in, which was not fantasy. That's not to say you can't have that as an enjoyment, 
I mean, sure, entertainment's fine, but when it's your obsession, something's up. Well, let's let's think about the few cultures we have that actually have a ceremony that tell you it's time for you to grow up. The bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, and I don't know a lot about it, but I'm reasonably sure it happens at age 13, where you're told, and I think verb, this might be the verbatim words, I'm not 100% sure, but now it's time to put away your childish things at age 13. Um, the implication there is if you're a boy, now you're a man. Well, what's that mean? What can a man do that a boy cannot? That's age 13. That culture is doing it. And yet the very industry that follows these cultural constructs is putting out shows where men in their 30s still have not put away their childish things and actually never will. There will never come a stop point. And not to stereotype, but that particular culture is behind a lot of these fantasy elements that are pushed on everyone else. Now, there's very few. Like I, I think maybe the quinceanera is uh, one of the other couple of places I can think of where young people are basically told, okay, we're at a crossroads here. You're not a little kid anymore. Um, and think what a difference that would make in a society if cultures in general had held on to that idea, whatever age it might have been. And it goes to show you, uh, and yeah, the very people who follow these cultural constructs are intricately tied to the entertainment that is showing the exact opposite and aiming for, I mean, I don't know another way to describe it, low-minded gutter content, basically, and childish to boot. Dream analysis. Freud considered dreams to be the royal road to the unconscious, as it is in dreams that the ego's defenses are lowered so that some of the repressed material comes through to awareness, albeit in a distorted form. Dreams perform important functions for the unconscious mind and serve as valuable clues to how the unconscious mind operates. There's something critically important about dreams, uh, and I've looked at it. I've written papers on it. I was interested all the way back in school, and Young was the person that I based that research on back in the day. It was a long time ago in the, in the 90s. But dreams in the current context of what I've been reading, uh, there are claims, and I guess they're almost hermetic, almost Christian mystic, this kind of vein, maybe, because uh, I don't think they per se fit. Uh, the idea is that when you're in dreams, you can actually leave this place and whatever someone might choose to accept that means is up to them. But I don't think there's any getting away from the dreams are very special, even in the context of the older cultures that we hear about where they were big on interpreting what a dream might mean. And I think this is one of the places where the Freud and Jung fell, fell out a little bit is what dreams mean. Well, there's no doubt that whatever part of the mind dreams exist in, it's a powerful thing because anyone who has suffered major trauma will almost certainly relive this trauma in some parts, at least in their dreams, which is why sleep issues are a frequent problem with people who have suffered trauma, especially if it's recent. Freud attracted many followers who formed a famous group in 1902 called the Psychological Wednesday Society. The group met every Wednesday in Freud's waiting room. As the organization grew, Freud established an inner circle of devoted followers, the so-called committee. At the beginning of 1908, the committee had 22 members and renamed themselves the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. 
Is this where all the work they've done starts to go south? Is this where they start making pamphlets for Bernays to use later? I don't know, but it all sounds a bit, I don't know. What do you think? Well, whomever was there, I'm quite certain they got the attention of higher-ups, let's say. And we're talking about the time when these think tank organizations are starting to come around. So did they tap into the work of these people? I absolutely think so. Um, it's early in the 1900s when Bernays starts shifting over here, right? So, I mean, the timing's just about right. Yeah, Bernays started really getting going around 1919 with the Paris Peace Accords right after the First World War. And then in the 1920s is when he started his private practice and off and running. And he was Austrian, right? Supposedly from from his original country. Is that right? Yes, an Austrian Jew. Okay. There it is, man. Um, I think I'll wrap up so we can have a little more room in the second hour to get things in. Anything you want to add in before I wrap up? Well, again, let's just say that even though we didn't get into Jung yet, uh, these concepts definitely have merit. There's some serious validity to everything we went through with Freud's work. Whether his exact breakdowns are 100% correct, who knows? It really doesn't matter because they're certainly applicable. And they are certainly being used today in mainstream society you see them in things like HR departments and things like that. These concepts, although they may be reworked and retooled and have slightly different names, the concepts are certainly there and used. And I would say they're fairly accurate. It's just that Freud kind of had his own twist on things. And seeing as how he was the first coming up with it, fair enough. He's trying to chart new territory, you might say. Well, I would ask a simple question. What are the odds nothing that Freud came up with is usable when his double nephew probably changed the United States more than any single person I'm aware of? I mean, can you think of anyone who changed the kind of cultural construct of the United States more than Bernays did? I can't. Bernays is absolutely critical with changing the way things were done, period. This is why every time I do a presentation, I bring him up, why I mention him all the time. I made a meme and put it on our Facebook group not too long ago saying, do you know who I am? My name is Edward Bernays. You should know who I am, that kind of thing, because this guy changed so much and he's never talked about. He didn't even hardly do any kind of appearances back when he was still alive. The only one I ever really found was one little clip with David Letterman in the very early 80s, and he was elderly by then, of course. But this man was so influential, and of course, the majority of what he did was completely extracted from Uncle Ziggy's work. There it is. I mean, what are the odds? So everyone's heard of Sigmund Freud, not everyone Bernays, but once you do, your jaw will drop, the things that Bernays was able to pull off. Uh, how is it that his uncle came up with all these ideas about the human mind, and then he was able to emigrate to this country in the early 1900s? and then basically change American culture to a degree that is almost mind-boggling. Do you suppose there's not a connection there? Of course there's a connection there. But um, the problem becomes, as I'm guessing, much of the things that worked and why they worked, you're not going to get breakdowns of those because those are probably like closely held trade secrets. But, you know, governments know these things, right? We're, we're experiencing right now in 2020. How in the hell did a nonsensical make-believe idea become so all-encompassing, and not just for one area, all over the world as far as we know. Um, the real truth is, is that we're not going to hear about all the people who have dissented from this nonsense. But again, I would argue that what's been pulled off here probably roots back to these two men and the clinical things that were done after to prove it worked. But again, 
you know, could someone look at how Bernays pulled off what he pulled off and implement things like 2020? I'm guessing they could use it. Let's add one point here before we tie up of what you just said. The things that are going on today, 2020, 2021, absolutely can be said to be derived from Bernays' work because Bernays figured out the most important thing when trying to sell a concept, whether it's a product or a slogan or whatever it happens to be, and that's tie it to an emotion because that will trigger in the human mind, directly derived from Freud's work and what has been pushed daily, hourly, with what's going on right now. Yeah. An emotion, all right. And that emotion is fear. There it is, the real contagion of our time. And, you know, that's that's an apt parallel you've drawn there uh, because that is Bernays' little part of his secret sauce to make a pun. But there's no denying what's driving this. Uh, it's just, it's a bit frightening how many people can't get beyond what their TV tells them is true. Uh, and what that tells you is that people have given up control of their own minds. They'll no longer think for themselves. But as we get into hour two, we're going to cover the more interesting side. To me, what Jung did uh, has many more interesting aspects. But to be fair, I could know a hell of a lot more about Jung than I do. I've read some of his things, but not to the level of the things that capture my attention that I'm super interested in. But we thought it was important uh, to lay, lay down the work of these guys because it does feel like a benchmark that precedes the Frankfurt School, precedes so-called Tavistock, and of course, the double nephew precedes the work of Bernays, which we've done a number of shows that, I mean, that dude basically turned this country into silly putty and molded it into whatever the hell he wanted at times. But there it is. There's hour one of episode 297. Join us on the other side at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com. The first hour here, in lieu of what we just said, will be running for free to everyone at crow777radio.com. Members know to log in. When we come back, we're going to burn through Young. And Young, to me, is the more fascinating of the two men. And again, uh, you'll have to be your own, your own judge about what you think about the ideas they laid down. Uh, and I'm sure there will be a lot of people listening that have studied this way more deeply than we have. Uh, we put together a good overview as best we could. There it is, man. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. Come.